Today we are looking at the sanctity of life, uh, the sacredness of life, the fact that life is precious. And we're going to be looking at some verses in Psalm 139. Uh, but as we do, I was thinking back about a story that I heard a number of years ago. Um, this was before fathers were allowed actually back with their wives when they were delivering babies. They had to stay in the waiting room. And so this one particular hospital, there were several fathers waiting uh, for their wives to deliver. And one doctor came out to an expectant father and he said, congratulations, your wife just had twins. He said, wow, that's amazing. I play baseball for the Minnesota Twins. And pretty soon another uh, father heard news that his wife had delivered triplets. He said, uh, that's amazing. My, I work for 3M Company. And about that time, there was a commotion, and a man was running out of the waiting room. And they said, where's he going? I said, he's leaving. He works for 7-Up. <laughs> so he was getting out of there. He didn't like the trend that was going on. Um, so he was getting out. But the truth of the matter is, life is incredibly precious and sacred. And as I was looking at Psalm 139, I thought it would be good for us to even look at some of the verses prior to the fact of God creating uh, man and, and just the whole aspect of that. And as we do, we need to look at the aspect of worship. I almost want to say life is precious, dash, therefore worship. We worship God when we understand what he has done and how involved he is in our lives from birth to death, from the cradle to the grave, as it were. So let's look at this. Uh, we're going to read through the actual first 16 verses of Psalm 139. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed, in the depths you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Here we can get a glimpse and it's as though the psalmist, as he is meditating on the greatness of God, his heart is bursting forth in praise and worship and adoration of his great God that he worships. And that's what we want to do this morning. He says at the opening that, God, you have searched me and you have known me. And so really the first thing that he is doing is he is 
bursting forth, if we can get this to work here, that we worship God because of his omniscience. Now, this is a word that we don't use very often, but this has to do with God's perfect knowledge, that he knows everything perfectly about everything. You know, there's a new uh, word that has come out in theology circles. Uh, you know, farmers get together and maybe talk about farm equipment and the latest and the greatest of that. Pastors get together and discuss theology and argue theology. And so one of the things that has come out in recent days in theology is that there's this idea of open theism. And what open theism is teaching is that God knows all of the possibilities that you and I might choose, he just doesn't know what we will choose. You know what I say to that? Hogwash. <laughs> Hogwash. That is not the God that I worship. The God that I worship is totally and completely omniscient. He knows everything about everything and every possibility. He has ordained all of our days from the beginning to the end, and he knows everything. God doesn't get surprised one day and say, you know, I never thought of that. You know, that never occurred to me. No, he doesn't do that. He knows everything about everything. And here's what it says in Psalm 17, 3. Though you probe my heart. This microphone has given me fits. Sorry about that. Though you probe my heart. And examine me at night. Though you test me, you will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. He's like, though you're probing my heart, you're investigating, you're searching, you are scrutinizing my ways. You're not going to find anything wrong. The searchlights of heaven are shining on everything that we think, say, and do. Now, when that happens, when we think about that thought, we're either going to burst forth into praise and adoration and worship... Or we're going to cower in fear because of the way we're living. It's going to bring a great comfort to my heart that God knows everything about my thoughts. Or it's going to bring great concern. And actually for many of us it probably brings both. Because as I think back over this past week and some of the thoughts that went through my mind. <laughs> they were not godly. And I'm like wow. And yet God knows that. And I guess the good news is you don't. <laughs> And you know what? The good news is I don't know your ungodly thoughts. And yet God is a God who knows everything about us. Jeremiah 12.3 says, Yet you know me, O Lord, you see me and test my thoughts about you. There are no secrets with God. Psalm 44.21, Would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? He knows the secrets of the heart. The very things that you can't see in my heart, God sees. The very things that you can't know, God knows. And the same with you. And it should be a great comfort and praise that we worship God because he is that great. He is that good. I do want to say, too, at the outset, too, um, you know, there was a, a point uh, this week where I, I, I struggled. I mean, I struggled with some, just some difficulty, and uh, I shared with the group at CR the other night that I was angry. I said, oh, he's a pastor and he gets angry. Yeah, I, I do <laughs> sometimes, and I was angry. And I had to stop and pray. I had to say, God, 
You've got you to take this from me. And the good thing is, the Holy Spirit, I'm happy to say, recalibrates our heart. That's what he does. He recalibrates our heart. He recalibrates our mind. And so even though at times you may have the wrong thoughts, I may have the wrong thoughts, if we are willing to take those thoughts to the Lord, he is willing and able to recalibrate our heart. And maybe you've been through something in your life, you know, you're just saying, you know, these thoughts aren't right and I can't deal with them. You know what? Take it to the Lord in prayer. I have witnessed it. I have, I have witnessed it and experienced it. And it can make all the difference in the world. In Hebrews 4.13, it says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And he goes on to say in this text, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. All my departures and all my arrivals are witnessed by you. You witness them. You see them. You know all that happens between morning and night. And then he goes on to say, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Is that a comfort or a concern? That God knows every word that is on our tongue. Mom and dad don't know. The pastor doesn't know. The elders don't know. But God knows. It should be a great source of comfort that God is there for us in our lives. He goes on to say, you hem me in. This is the idea of God being a fence, a protection and a care for us. He says, you hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. That is the comfort and care of a shepherd who cares for us. He says, your knowledge is deep. God's knowledge is so vast, I can't get my mind around it. So that's the first one. The second one is that we worship God because of his omnipotence. His omnipotence. Did that skip? Omnipresence. Omnipresence. That God is everywhere. Verses 7 to 12 in our text. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He's saying, I can't go high enough to get beyond the presence of God. Yeah, we've sent man to the moon and we've sent him a long places. But you can't get beyond the realm of the presence of God no matter how high you go. You cannot escape the presence of God no matter how low you go either. God is there. And then he goes on to say that even east and west, he said, if I rise on the wings of the dawn where the sun rises, if I settle on the far side of the sea where the sun sets, no matter how far east you go or west, God is there. That's a comfort to me. I can never get outside the realm of his presence. What a great comfort that God cares that much about me. In Job 34, 21, he says, His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. Every step I take, God is there. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I feel heaven and earth? God fills it all. 
He fills it all. And then the third one we want to look at today is that worship God because of his omnipotence. We see this in verses 13 to 16. God's omnipotence. Here's what it says. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so here we see the preciousness of life that God is intricately involved in the conception of human life. Intricately involved in the conception of human life. I'm reminded of the couple that uh, they were doctoring as they had a new child and the husband said to his wife, he said, darling, I went in and paid the doctor another $85 today. The wife says, isn't it wonderful? Just think, three more payments and the baby will be ours. You know, you just feel like, and really, that's only the beginning, right? <laughs> um, it's only the beginning. But you know, these verses give us God's viewpoint on the unborn. In Psalm 119, verse 73, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Life begins at fertilization. When the sperm and the ovum come together and form a single cell, that's a gift from God. A new human life is created. All of the characteristics of the person, the sex, the eye color, the shoe size, the intelligence are determined in fertilization by the baby's genetic code in those 46 human chromosomes. That is a gift of God. When we look at the Old Testament, we can see where God actually closed the womb of some wives and did not allow them. They were barren, and it was very uh, a stigma in their society. And only when God opened the womb and allowed them to be fruitful and multiply did the gift of life happen to show us that God indeed is in control. Remember Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old, and, Ab er, and Sarah in her 90s, and yet coming to conception because God oversaw that process. And so God is very much involved in the process. During the Vietnam War, the communists scoffed at the American forces' view of human life, perceiving it to be ignorant and stupid the communists were astonished when groups of our men, able-bodied men, would go back under enemy fire and rescue men who had fallen and been injured or killed in battle to take them back because of the value of life. Historical accounts of the Korean War tell of U.S. Marines who marched down the frozen chosen reservoir under horrible battle conditions and bitterly cold temperatures to carry the wounded and dead with them. So that brings to mind a question. What has happened to America's respect for human life? 
About the time the United States withdrew from Vietnam, our country turned its back on its traditional respect for human life by a Supreme Court ruling, Roe v. Wade, on January 22, 1973, in the United States legalizing abortion. Yet I want to remind us of a document, an official document of the United States called the Declaration of Independence. And listen how it begins. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I like that, created equal, to point to a creator. It's not this evolutionary, naturalistic philosophy of life because the naturalist will tell you and the evolutionist will tell you that life is meaningless and valueless and pointless, really. And that's why you have the animal rights movement who are evolutionist and naturalist because they don't see the value. They put the animal rights above a human and that's why we'll save the whales and the trees and slaughter innocent lives. But he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if there should be safety anywhere on the face of the globe, it should be in the womb of a mother, a child. The reality of our world is that life is not precious or valuable, and that's why we have our morals mixed up. But the reality of God is that God grants forgiveness to all who confess and repent of their sin. We as a nation need to repent of our sin of allowing the slaughter of millions of innocent babies. We should repent as a nation. I know this can be a very difficult time of year for someone who has experienced abortion. And I want to tell you that there is a God who is full of grace and forgiveness and love and kindness and our sins are removed as far as the east from the west. They are buried in the sea of his forgetfulness when we confess those sins to him. I do not want you to walk out of here feeling guilty. You walk out clean and cleansed when you are under the blood of Christ. Praise him. He says if we confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that is true. He does. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Job reminds us, though, that it doesn't really matter who we're conceived by, we are all of equal value. He says in Job 31, 13, if I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? And then he says this, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Jeremiah, when he was called upon by God to take, the, uh, take his message to the nations, he said, I can't do that. I'm a child. I can't do that, God. And here's what God reminds Jeremiah of. 
in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's how much God is involved. Before he was even formed in the womb, God knew Jeremiah. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You see, God is the one who forms that person in the womb. He is the one who develops the personality, the gifts and talents and abilities, and even the conscience, that you and I have a conscience toward God, is God-given. The ability to discern right from wrong, the personalities that we have, and that's what makes life interesting, isn't it? The personalities it also can cause a lot of friction as well. Because there are some people who are wired in a particular way. They're very driven. They're high energy. They're high goal oriented. They're the accomplisher, the achiever. And then you have the person over here that's laid back. Oh, we don't need to do that today. We can do it tomorrow. And the high achievers like running them over, you know, and trying to get things done. I mean, I'll never forget when the Cowboys won the Super Bowl and Tom Landry's on national TV. And I mean, you know, the highlight of his career, right? And he's like, I'm so excited. I'm convinced. Um, there are other people who are very social. They love to be around people. They're the life of the party. The more, the merrier. They can talk on the phone for 20 minutes before they realize it's the wrong number. They just have this warmth about them, but they're able to bring warmth into the body of Christ. They're able to make people feel at home. And so we need every one of those personalities in the church. And yes, that's how we can get on one another's nerves. But remember, when we look at that person, we have to remember they're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if they're weak, they're poor, they have a, a, a small intelligence level. It doesn't matter. God is the one. Here's what he says. You created, in verse 13, my inmost being, that personality, that conscience, those abilities. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Some have great athletic ability. Do you thank God for that athletic ability? You give credit and praise and honor to the Lord for that athletic ability. Some of you have people maybe that God has put in your life that are difficult to love because of their personality, because of their quirks. Do you realize that God has brought that person into the, your world? Maybe to stretch your love, to stretch your acceptance, to stretch your spirituality. You knit me together, he says, I am like a fine piece of art, he's saying, and God, you are the master craftsman who patiently and skillfully fashions my life. That's who you are. Every human conception bears the image of God. He tells us in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice he repeats it twice. He says, God created man in his own image. Man in his image. And then he says, in the image of God, he created them for emphasis. And then he goes on to say, male and female, he created them. To show that both male and female are created in the image of God. 
Now, the image of God is not spelled out in a particular passage of Scripture, but we know that humans are the only ones who bear God's image. I'm even reminded of a a man by the name of Mephibosheth. Remember him in the Old Testament. Mephibosheth was crippled, and yet David loved and cared for and valued Mephibosheth. The madman Legion, who was possessed by many demons that we looked at a few weeks ago, received compassion from Jesus. God endows mankind with personhood. In the 21st century, personhood is defined by what a person does. In the Bible, however, that's not true. In the Bible, personhood is determined by man's intrinsic nature and his exalted position apart from an overcreation being made in the image of God. The weak, the poor, the children, the elderly have value and worth based on their creator who made them in his image. This answers some very important questions for us. Because some people say, Why am I here? Uh, You are here because God brought you into existence. So that answers the question, do I belong? Yes, you belong because God brought you here. And then it's for us to discern, why did God bring us here? What did he create me to do? What did he create me to be? How does he want me to impact and influence the world for the cause of Christ? How does he want me to do that? Each person is unique. He says we are woven together. He says in verse 15, when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together, it's the idea of the priestly robes that had needlework done, very extensively needlework done, embroidery done, that God embroidered, needled our life together with the veins and the arteries and the skeletal system and all the systems of our body. You are the only person who has ever existed that is exactly like you. You're not like, exa- exactly like your parents. You are not exactly like any of your ancestors, to which you say, praise God, <laughs> right? But you think about this. You are the only person who has ever existed or ever will exist that will be exactly like you. I think that deserves the praise and worship of God. In the little booklet, when when you were formed in the secret, it says, as you completed the first month of your life, you were about the size of an apple seed, or one-sixth to one-fourth of an inch in length. (laughs) Think about that. Your heart began beating at three weeks and has set the rhythm of life for all your days. Your brain began to form and soon would send impulses throughout your body. On the 24th day of your existence, you had no arms or legs. Then suddenly, just two days later, tiny buds for your arms appeared. And then your legs budded in only two more days. In a mere four weeks, you looked every bit like a tiny baby and even began to react and respond like one. 
I mean, that's a miracle. And that's why life is precious, because God has formed every life. And we need to do everything we can to trumpet life. I have uh, had conversations with my boys, and I've told them, I said, I think we live in a culture of death today. Because everywhere we look on television and, and programs and a lot of these video games are all about death. And yet God is the author of life. And we need to respond to that. Another thing I think that would be good for us to do is when is the last time we thank the Lord for protecting us in our mother's womb? for giving us our mothers and our parents, but God protecting us. Look how tiny you were. You, had no, you, had, you didn't even know you existed. I didn't know I existed. And God protected and supervised and created me for such a time as this. And he created you for such a time as this. You count. <laughs> you count. God has a plan. When the twins, Jacob and Esau, were born, it says before they were even born, God had a purpose for each one of them. And that Jacob would be the one instead of Esau because of the purpose of God. So do you thank the Lord for superintending over your birth and entrance into this world for the health you enjoy? Do you thank the Lord for the athletic abilities that you have or for your art ability or for your music ability or your ability to work with your hands? Those are all gifts of the Lord. And we are to use every member of our body to exalt Christ in every aspect of our lives. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. As you do, if you are here this morning and you are battling a low self-esteem, you're like, you know what, I, I, I don't think I'm that valuable. I don't think I'm that significant. I don't think I'm that important. I don't think my life really counts. I'm here to tell you, you better look at your life through the lens of God and the greatness of God, that every life matters. And it's interesting because there's another psalm that says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why is death precious to the Lord? Because life is precious. Your life counts. You may be here and you're a teenager and you know what? You're, you, people don't, you don't get along with people and maybe you've had some hard times and you think that your life doesn't matter. It matters greatly. God sees your heartache. He sees your concern. He knows your thoughts. Every thought you have, God knows about. And he wants to correct our thinking that we look through the lens of Scripture in our life. You are here for a purpose. God has you here for a purpose. Our goal, our plan, is to say, God, how can I fulfill that purpose? How can I accomplish it for your honor and glory? There may be some twists and turns that come into your life. You know what? Your life may be right now where you not, did not expect it to be. 
But you know that God is ahead of you because all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. God is not surprised by where you're at this morning or what your thoughts are, what you're struggling with or wrestling with. He knows exactly where you are. You are made in his image. Do you realize how profound that is? That means there are seven billion images of God in his world. Seven billion images of God. You can't look anywhere without seeing an image of God. That is profound to me. And that's why I think so many people are looking to destroy life because it's the image of God. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have an external faith, but it's not internal. The reality of your thought life is you don't know God personally. You don't have a relationship with him. If you were to die, you would die in your sins separated from God. Would you give your life to Christ? Would you understand that he created you? He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you personally. He wants you to know him personally. But he will not force his way into your life. You have to open your heart to him. Would you do that? You can begin in a wonderful, exciting journey of a walk with God if you're willing to open your heart to him. If you have questions or you would like someone to pray with you this morning, I'm here. I'll be willing to pray with you. Would you open your heart and life to the Lord? Let's bow for a prayer. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.